0: I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 12. We looked last Sunday for Christmas, we looked at, uh, or actually last Monday for Christmas morning, we looked at the first six verses um, and saw how that really laid out in worldwide context the history behind the coming of the Son and the victory that that obtained even when he came, even at his birth. We're going to look at the last section of that chapter, because that points us forward. But I'd like to read the whole chapter with you so that we can see this all in context. Now, what we see here are three, three elements to a single vision. You'll notice that it stands right in the center, right at the heart of, uh, of this book of Revelation. That's intentional. If we were to outline the book of Revelation, we would see that everything before this holds together, everything after this holds together. This is the hinge point that really demonstrates that Christ is the hinge, that Christ, in his coming, was the apex of human history between the creation of all things and the coming of the new heavens and the new earth. John says, a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Christ or of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Amen. Beloved Church of God, purchased through Christ the Son. A week ago, as I said, we saw how the start of this text presents the church as the mother of Christ. She is a mother filled and clothed even with glory. A woman who is victorious over the darkness and crowned so as to identify her with Israel of old and with the church of today. She is pursued by a fierce enemy, the dragon, who is Satan, and the serpent. And yet our God frustrated Satan's plan as he sought to destroy the son who was sent to destroy him. And because God frustrated his plans, the victory was obtained and the son ascended to sit at the right hand of God in heaven. That's what we saw on Christmas, as we consider these first six verses of Revelation 12. But this chapter is about more than simply Jesus' birth. It is about the triumph that he brought over the dragon who opposed him, and about the continuing salvation and preservation of the church throughout this age. In other words, this chapter is also about the church now, today and in the days to come. And that makes it particularly fitting that we consider this on the last day of the year. As we look ahead to a year that's filled with we know not what. As we look ahead remembering not just the triumphs but the struggles that we've experienced in the year just past. Not knowing what that new calendar on the wall holds. It is extremely helpful, extremely encouraging for us to see what God has taught us to expect of the future that still awaits us. So, this morning, as we mark the end of one year and the coming of another, we hear God's guidance for us as the church awaits the triumphant sun from her wilderness escape. That's our theme. The church awaits the triumphant son, and she does so from her wilderness escape. But in order to see that, we need to start by seeing why there needs to be an escape in the wilderness. And that's what we see in the middle of this chapter. Just for a moment, we need to see what verses 7 through 12 hold. John describes there a war, but it's not a war fought predominantly on earth. It's a war that is set in his vision in heaven. On one side are Michael and his angels. Now, Michael is first encountered in Daniel, and he is described as the one, the archangel who is charged with the preservation of the people of God. He stands fighting in the invisible realms of spiritual warfare, fighting those who would destroy and bring low Israel, the people chosen by God, as they are attacked by the dark forces of evil. Michael and his angels, John says, were fighting against the dragon and the angels of God who were at his side. They were engaging in a spiritual warfare, The angels of God versus the angels who had rebelled. This is the the warfare that's described in Ephesians 6 when he says that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against all of these heavenly powers. And according to what John saw, the dragon and his Fallen angels are unable to withstand Michael and his angels. And so verse 9, the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And then a loud voice declares in John's hearing the significance of this victory. Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. You see, this victory came... In reality, not because Michael and his angels were so strong or so determined or so battle-wise, but it was a victory that came above all else because of the long-awaited Son. Because he suffered unto death the defeat that we deserved and then rose again to life triumphant over both death and Satan the victory was won in his name. The salvation that came was his salvation. The power displayed was the power of the Son of God. The kingdom that was established was the kingdom over which the Son rules from heaven with authority over, every, over everything in heaven and on earth. Michael was able to cast out the dragon and his fallen angels by the newly established authority of the Son. And it was not an It was not a victory won by Michael and his angels alone. In verse 11, we read, They conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And the they, brothers and sisters, in that verse doesn't just refer to Michael and friends. It refers to us. It speaks of God's people the children of Eve, the offspring of the church. We fight on earth, even as they fought in heaven. And the victory we win is not by armies, it's not by horses, it's not by weapons of warfare that we wield with our hands. It is by the authority and the power and the victory of Christ as we confess Him, as we conquer in His name. We too have overcome Satan through the blood of Christ and through the word of our testimony. And now having been cast down, Satan, the dragon, is furious. And we read, Woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows his time is short. And that's what brings us to our text in verse 13. Now understand, Satan has always been active in the world here below. He was present in the garden. He's the one who led Eve and then Adam into rebellion. He is the one who influenced all of the enemies who opposed the people of God throughout the ages. The dragon was not unacquainted with the people and the places of this world, but with his defeat at the hands of Christ, with the triumph on the cross and from the grave, Suddenly the world is no longer just the place where he does battle, now it has become his prison. Now he doesn't have the option of leaving. Now he is stuck there. No longer can the dragon hope to influence more of God's holy angels. No longer has he the ability to deceive all the nations. His dream of dominating the creation has been dashed, and therefore he is absolutely furious. So the question comes, how will he handle that fury How will he respond to his exile? The devil's desire is for revenge. The dragon wanted to devour the son who came to conquer him. If he had his way, he would have destroyed the son from the very start. But now the son has been taken out of reach. He's sitting at the right hand of God where Satan is no longer allowed. So the dragon turns his fury on the one who brought forth the son. He seeks to destroy the woman, the church. Now, of course, that won't do anything to help the dragon. That won't bring a renewed victory. But he has every reason to hate the church. Because the church, the people of God, brought forth the one who came to destroy him. Brothers and sisters, strange as it sounds, there's comfort in verse 13. John saw this vision at a time when the church was just starting to feel true persecution. And that was going to be a hard thing for them. Because God's people believed that Jesus had won the ultimate war. His enemy had been defeated. Their enemy had been overcome. And so they would be knowing that. And knowing that Jesus, just before his ascension... Taught them all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Knowing that, they would surely be confused, confounded a bit. To find persecution coming at them from the unbelieving Jews and from Gentiles of every stripe. If Jesus won, why all of this opposition? Why this torment? Why this hatred? If Jesus won, what was happening with all these enemies coming against them? And so by this vision, God is showing them that torment, that persecution, that fury is a sign that Satan has in fact been conquered. He's angry, he's bitter, he's furious because he can no longer reach the one he would have to defeat in order to gain the victory. He's expressing his fury and his frustration upon them. Because there's nothing more he can do. The ferocity of the dragon's attack serves serves to confirm his defeat. That, above all else, is the significance of the dragon's pursuit of God's beloved bride. He pursues the woman because the son is out of reach. He pursues the bride of God in his wrath at Jesus' triumph. The dragon is desperate for revenge, knowing that his defeat is sure, understanding that his time is short. And in the dragon's rage lays the church's strong confidence that he's been defeated. Now with verse 14, the focus shifts from the dragon to the bride. How will the church respond? How will the church endure the dragon's fury? Now even as John witnessed this vision, the dragon had begun his pursuit. From the moment he was cast down, the dragon has been desperate for revenge... Intent on destroying the mother of the son who conquered him. And therefore, God's people need to know what will be the outcome of these attacks. And it's a question that God answers by giving them the assurance that they will be preserved by His boundless power. That's our second point. Verse 14 says, The woman... The woman was given the two wings of the great eagle. Now, the eagle is an image used repeatedly in the Bible. Because it is such a great and powerful predator, God often used the eagle as an image of swift judgment. But also, it was used to symbolize power and vigor and majesty. Here, the eagle is used in a way that's familiar to Jewish ears. They heard something quite similar regarding God's provision after they were delivered from Egypt. In Exodus 19, Moses told them, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. God told them that he delivered them on eagles' wings from the fury of Pharaoh. And then later on, after he had brought them for 40 years through the wilderness, had brought them all the way up to the border of the promised land. All they had to do was cross over the river. God used, again, the eagle to give them assurance that despite all these enemies that awaited them, He would preserve them. He says in Deuteronomy 32, like an eagle that stirs up its nest and flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them up on its pinions. The Lord alone guided him. No foreign God was with him. God is the one who preserved them. And God is the one who would preserve them. And as he did back then, so God would continue to do. The Lord is the one who would rescue them. The Lord is the one who would preserve them. And how would he deliver them? Verse 14 says, He would catch them up and fly, and they would fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished. Where is the wilderness? For God's people, the wilderness has always described the regions beyond the promised land. When they were enslaved in Egypt, They were rescued, brought through the sea, and taken into the wilderness where they learned that they would not endure by bread alone, but by every word that came from the mouth of God. For 40 years, God provided every morsel that nourished their bodies and every bit of wisdom that nourished their souls until finally they came to the promised land when they refused to serve God with an obedient faith, with a faith that demonstrated its trust in Him, He sent them again out into the wilderness of Assyria and Babylon and Persia until they learned to trust again in Him and were brought back to the land. So now they were going to be sent out again from the promised land into the wilderness, into the the nations round about. And John saw that in this wilderness, among the nations, God would care for His bride for a time, times, and half a time. Again, that's a symbolic time reference. Equivalent to the 1,260 years in verse 6. We saw on Monday that that's equivalent to three and a half years. Half of the perfect fullness of time. So it is symbolic of half of history. It took half of history for the sun to come, and right at the apex of human history, Christ won his victory. And now the second half is what we are enduring. We won't see the fullness of the victory he has won until the fullness of the seven years has dawned. But until that time, for a time, times and half a time, we will be preserved in the wilderness by God. And that's where we remain today. This is where we fit into this vision. We are part of the bride living today in this wilderness place God has prepared for us where He Himself nourishes us. Even today, we are being rescued, we are being preserved from the serpent, from the dragon who longs to destroy and annihilate us. God will not allow His church to be destroyed. That's the message there. He caught us up, He took us away from the place where the serpent sought to destroy that we might be protected. Now, that's not to say that it's a place of comfort. The wilderness is a harsh place. Israel found that out for 40 years. They didn't plant any crops. They didn't build any houses because it was an arid place. It was a place devoid of blessings, the blessings they longed for in the promised land, the blessings God had promised them. And that's where we are. We live here, we dwell, there's a measure of comfort, a measure of joy, but it is nothing in comparison with the promised land that awaits us. It is nothing in comparison with the new heavens and the new earth that God has promised is waiting in the wings. But in the meantime, we rejoice because we're in God's presence, and He's providing what we need for body and soul, and He is protecting us against the evil one, and He will do so until Jesus returns. Nonetheless, that's not what the dragon expected would happen. See, as powerful as the dragon is, omniscient he is not. Except, understand, except for the 70 years of the exile, God's people had lived in the promised land for 1,500 years. They gathered for worship together at Jerusalem. Though they might settle in Galilee or in Antioch or in some distant outpost. Three times a year, the faithful of God's people gathered together at the temple in Jerusalem. And so when the dragon sought to destroy the bride, he went to where the bride had always lived, to where the mother had always dwelt, and that was in Jerusalem. And so verse 15 says, The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. Now that imagery of a river, like the image of the wilderness is fraught with significance in the light of God's Word. The first rivers we encounter in Scripture are good. right? They water the garden where God had placed the man and his wife. But after that, rivers are usually ominous. Because a swift-flowing river can destroy a man in a heartbeat. An overflowing river flooding its banks can wipe out settlements in no time. Rivers can be terrifying in the destruction they bring. That's why it was so stunning that Israel entered the promised land by passing through the midst of the Jordan at flood stage. And that's why Isaiah 59 says that God's judgment will come like the flood waters of a great river. And it's in this sense, that dark and ominous sense, that the dragon's river would come. He would send a force of unstoppable power to absolutely wipe away the church, the bride, the mother... That was his plan. And what was it? This river that the dragon sent to destroy the church. Well, remember, this image of a dragon is not brand new. None of the images, by the way, in Revelation are new. Every one of them arises from the Old Testament. And this image of a dragon comes directly from Daniel 7. When Daniel sees as... Fierce beasts, the kingdoms of this world, the kingdoms of the wilderness. And the fourth beast, greater and more fierce and more destructive than all the rest, is described as a dragon. And that beast represented Rome. Satan planned to use Rome to destroy the church as a mighty destructive flood. But look, verse 16 But the earth, the word there is gay, it means land. But the earth or the land opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from its mouth. What is this talking about? Folks, right after this was written, for three years, Rome besieged Judea and Jerusalem at its center. Bringing the full wrath of the Roman army that had conquered so many kingdoms... Against this little outpost of the chosen people of God. However, that's exactly what Jesus had taught his disciples to expect. And he told them that when they saw the first pangs of that persecution, they should flee from Jerusalem and from Judea. In fact, he told them just before he ascended that they were going to be sent out into Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so, when Satan did this, when Satan sent this flood against Jerusalem, the only ones who were there were the bride, were the mother. They were already gone. They had already fled. We read about it. We read about it in Acts 8. Right after the persecution began with the stoning of Stephen. There arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Everybody else fled. Chapter 11 tells us, in verses 19 through 21, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, Speaking the word. You know what? Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch are. they the wilderness where God sent his people. And they spoke the word at first to no one except the Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also. That is, the Gentile believers preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. God sent His people out. God sent His people forth. And they were able to escape. Meanwhile, the flood was absorbed by the land of Israel, Judea. But the bride was not there. And folks, that sets a pattern for this period in which we live. Time and time and time again. Satan sends forth his wrath. He seeks to destroy the church. He seeks to annihilate the mother in his fury. But time and again, God causes his people to escape. And the flood falls useless upon the land. And we know that will always happen. Because the one whom we serve is infinitely greater than the one who desires our destruction. He can never overcome... Our God. He can never outthink, outplan, out-strategize our king. Always our God is swift to deliver, sending us wings that we might escape and causing the flood to fall useless. However, that is not to say that the dragon simply gives up. He soon sees that his attempt against the bride has failed, and so instead the dragon pursues her children, the members whom the church has borne. And that's our final point, the children who persevere against God's bitter enemy. The emphasis in this final verse, it's not on the fact that the dragon continues to pursue the church. The emphasis is on the identity of those whom he pursues. Because here we see an image of the offspring of the bride and those offspring are us. So here we see what we ought to look like as we we are preserved, as we are protected by the Lord. Those described here are identified first of all as the rest of her offspring. Now that's evident but it says a mouthful. The bride's preeminent child is the son, Jesus himself. But that's not the only offspring that the woman brings forth. Romans 8. Romans 8 tells us in verse 14, all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And then it tells us in verse 15 that it is through The coming of the Spirit that we are adopted and made the children of God. And so verse 16, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Ephesians 1 verse 5 tells us that was God's intention from the very start. Not only that we would be saved from our sins, not only that we would be granted access to heaven, but that we would become the children of God, that we would become the brothers and sisters of Christ Himself. It is no small thing to be called the children of the Bride. In fact, John 3, the Apostle marvels, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God and so we are. I mean, that means that God loves us with the love of a father, with the love of a parent for his child. How much do you love your children? Sometimes we get frustrated with them. Even a little disappointed at times. But we always love them with a love that is unquenchable and indescribable. We love them so much we would give them anything that we think would help them. We're always there for them. They know they can turn to us no matter what. Well, if we who are sinful, if we who are weak, love our children that much, how much more God, who is the perfect father, the perfect parent, the one who never lets down his children... an amazing thing to be the children of God. That's the first thing that we learn about those whom Satan seeks today. They are the children, they are the offspring of the woman, and there's more because we who are the children keep the commandments of God. Now some will get confused at that. That sounds too Old Testament. But the people of the Old Testament are the same as the people of the New Testament. We don't earn anything by our obedience to God, but we demonstrate the truth of our faith. We demonstrate the reality of our adoption by obeying. 1 John 5, verse 3, this is the love of God that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. Would you have confidence that you are a child of God? Then do what no one who is not a child of God would ever want to do. Obey your Father. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. The more we do that, the more we conform our lives to God's law, the more we seek to put off the sins that God hates and to put on the righteousness and the holiness that reflects God, the more that we see that we are children of our Heavenly Father and that God is the one who will preserve us. And above all else, the children of the bride are known because... They hold to the testimony of Jesus. 1 John 5, verses 11 and 12. This is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. This is the confession at the heart of our comfort. This is the testimony that has given us life when we were dead. The dragon hears that confession and it sets his considerable teeth on edge because it tells him that we stand on the side of the one who conquered him. It tells him that we are united to the one who is ultimately going to judge and destroy him. The dragon hates us because we persevere in the testimony of Jesus. But the dragon's hatred must not discourage us. Quite the opposite. From start to finish, this vision shows the dragon's... Impotence. He can roar. He can attack. He can send forth a flood of fury, but he cannot destroy the bride, nor can he destroy the people of God. The absolute worst he can do is cause us a little momentary harm, which ushers us into the presence of our God and Father. He cannot ultimately hurt us. So let us, as we look to the coming year, let us make it our resolve to show the world that we belong to Him. Let us make it our resolve that through the testimony we speak and the commands that we obey and the identity that we embrace as the children of God, let us show the world whose side we're on. Whose children we are. And whose victory we own. We're going to talk about that a bit more tonight. How we're called to a life of self-evaluation. A life of demonstrating God's choice of us. In a way that brings us great comfort. But for now know that as we do that. No matter how much the dragon roars. No matter how harshly he attacks. He has lost. In Christ, we have won and no one can snatch from us the victory. That's our comfort. That's our joy. And it's in that strength that we go forth. Amen. Let's pray. Father, you are the one who has brought us into this wilderness place where we are preserved from the dragon. Thank you for that. Thank you above all else that you have adopted us as your children and have taught us to live as your children. Father, we pray that you would make us delight in you and delight in living for you. And we pray, Father, that you would add to our number all of those whom you have set apart for yourself that very soon that day might dawn when we see the sun return. We see the fullness of the dragon's defeat and we enter into the fullness and the perfection of the victory that Christ has obtained. Until then, Lord, hold us fast. Encourage us and fill us with joy at the knowledge that we are indeed your sons and daughters in Jesus, your Son. Amen.